All right, good evening. Welcome back. Good to see you all here tonight. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then uh, we're going to start with Job 38. I'm going to back up a little bit. We might cover some of the ground we touched on last week, but I want to make sure we're solid and we're not losing track of things. So let's uh, open with prayer and ask the Father's blessing upon our time tonight. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing and privilege that we have to assemble together. Father, uh, we call upon your faithfulness and the faithful ministry of God the Holy Spirit, asking for uh, his teaching ministry to be alive and powerful, asking, Father, for uh, us to be led in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, I think that the word of God does not depend upon how smart we are to figure these things out. It depends upon how faithful you are to open our eyes and to teach us from your truth. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we uh, got to start on this a week ago. We're at a portion in basic doctrinal studies that we want to have a kind of a big picture understanding of the plan of God. And uh, this particular section of basics is called boolology. And uh, if you've never heard that word before, it's probably because I made it up. All right, and so I'm going to collect trademarks on it and copyright and everything else. Uh, but it comes from boule, all right? And the boule, or the, the plan, all right? The will. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with thelema. And so uh, I try to make distinctions. Thelema I use exclusively for the will of God. And boule, or bulamai, is, is bigger than that. It references the entire plan from alpha to omega. And so I've titled this boulology to reflect the plan of God. All right? God has a plan. And in some respects, that, that should excite us because many of us have no kind of plan at all. Uh, but it's good to have a plan. And uh, in the Father's case, um, His plan is perfect. And He's been executing that plan since the Alpha moment. Uh, he and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agreed to this plan before the foundation of the world. All right? And so I'm going to change my mind. I know I said we're going to start with Job 38. Let's start with uh, Ephesians, if we can. Ephesians 2.11 and Ephesians 3.11. I um, appreciate these verses as we talk about the, uh, the plan of God. Let me go to, um, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1.11 and Ephesians 3.11. We have obtained an inheritance having predestined, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. All right? And so this is our blessing. It's our blessing to be a part of the plan of God. It's our blessing to have our part in the plan of God. And even before we study what that whole plan is all about, just knowing that we're a part of it is, is huge. It's a great comfort to each one of us. It's like the comfort that a, a child has when they know that they're in a family, when they know that they have parents and people who love them, and, and uh, they may not know what's going to happen next, but they know that it's okay, <laughs> right? Because uh, you know, family takes care of family, mom and dad are there. And that's part of the blessings of being a child of God, knowing that the Father has a plan, and we're a part of that plan. So we should be thankful there. Um, and as I say, 3.11, Ephesians 3.11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. What was in accordance? Well, um, our part in that plan. If I can back up just a little bit, verse 8 of Ephesians 3 to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so, um, you know, when we get into these realms, sometimes our head spins. <laughs> sometimes we think, man, this, this is so deep. 
It doesn't have to be. It can be. We can keep it a, a, on a basic level, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strive to do that tonight, um, making the complex understandable. We were joking before, uh, before class. That's why we're here, to make the complex understandable. Uh, but the unfathomable riches of, in Christ, guess what? We are expected to fathom the unfathomable. Just like we are expected to approach the unapproachable. God dwells in unapproachable light, but we, we approach the unapproachable. And there's so many other conundrums that are like that, some oxymorons or some uh, paradoxes of the church age. It's, it's extraordinary to consider that. The, the peace of Christ that surpasseth understanding, and yet we understand it. He calls us to understand it. Or uh, things you know, that are beyond knowledge, and yet we know these things. And, and these are... These are privileges for us. All right, so we have the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light, what is the administration? All right, administration. Here's the concept, and this is what you got to get down. And uh, this is sometimes rendered dispensation, administration, economy, all right? These are concepts that the New Testament lays out there very clearly, and we want to be solid on these. If we're weak on this expression, the oikonomia of the New Testament, then uh, I think we're going to be in trouble down the road. And so that's why I, I insist on keeping this as a part of basics. All right, if folks that would rather just move it on to more advanced studies or intermediate studies, no, I think dispensations are vital. I think knowing why we're not in the Old Testament is vital. Knowing why we're in the New Testament, knowing the difference between law and grace, the difference between the church and Israel, the difference on a basic level, a brand new believer can get this. All right? And if we have questions, we're going to slow down, we're going to take questions tonight. We're going to walk everybody through this. But to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Okay? And so, like, pretend you're at the mall and there's the thing there that says, You are here with a red dot. All right? That's us. You are here. We are the administration of the mystery. That's called the church age. It's called the dispensation of the church, all right? Which has been, which was a mystery before it was unveiled. But now it has been unveiled. All right. And so these are the concepts. God has an overall plan from Alpha to Omega, but within that plan, at various times and in a specific sequence, he has applied different stewardships. He has applied different vested stewards to administer his plan here on this earth, all right? And so whichever English word helps you think of this through is fine. They're all acceptable translations of oikonomia. We can think of administration, right? And, and we go through different administrations. We're getting ready to pass from the Obama administration to whoever's next, all right? Before that, we had the Bush administration. Before that, we had the Clinton administration. We're used to different administrations. So if that helps you think things through, then use that administration or use uh, economy all right because the word oikonomia does uh, give us the english word economy so you could think about a law economy or a grace economy you could think about different economies all right if that helps so whatever whatever your thinking is if you're more in tune of thinking in terms of economies or dispensations or um or stewardships all right or uh, administrations, whatever your mind wraps around, wrap around that. Because that's where we are. That's what we're dealing with. Right now we have the administration of the church, the dispensation of the church, the stewardship of the church. I like stewardship. To me, stewardship is great. Um, you know, because I, I read Tolkien, I don't know how many times. I read Lord of the Rings, I think for the first time when I was seven years old. And then I would read it every summer after that until 
I left home, all right? So, I mean, I read it 10 times before joining the Army. I was a big Lord of the Rings fan. And, and, and now, of course, the movies are out now and all that. But the idea of a steward is, is, is right there. It's key as, as part of the plot, a part of the storyline with Lord of the Rings because uh, you have a, a, a missing king is what you end up having. You have a throne that's been vacated, but the promise that a king is coming back, Okay. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's almost allegorical. It's almost you know, similar to the Scriptures. We have a vacant throne, and there's a king who's coming back. Jesus is coming back, and he will take his seat on the throne of David. That is a promise. All right. Now, in the meantime, we have stewards. While the king is absent, we have stewards. And that's huge, all right? because we're the stewards now in the church. Before us, it was Israel. Israel were the vested stewards. And before Israel was Gentiles. And I'm going to walk you through this whole sequence. And we ought to be able to keep it simple just by understanding angels, Gentiles, Jews, and church. All right? That just keeps it simple. And so we know who the, who the stewards are as the, as the plan unfolds. All right. Anyway, if you're familiar with the Tolkien story, then you realize that there was a steward the last of the stewards of Gondor, Lord Denethor, who was very faithless. All right, He had no interest in a king coming back. He felt that that was uh, going to diminish him and it was going to remove his influence and power and wealth and whatever else. And so he, he was not exactly dazzled by the idea that, that Aragorn was, was the rightful king. And um, aspects there. All right, We don't want to be faithless in our stewardship. We want to be faithful in our stewards. It's required of a steward to be found faithful. And uh, Scripture lets us know this. So again, back to Ephesians, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. We've got another clue in that verse as well. It's the the idea of ages, all right? Ages. And and in my effort to make this simple, I, I try to be consistent on my vocabulary. I want to use age for a time frame, all right? An age, an ion, it refers to an era or a period of time. And so as I use the terms, all right, a, a, a dispensation is a stewardship. And within that dispensation are subdivisions, are different ages, all right? That's how I use the expression. Different pastors will use the terms differently. And even Ryrie, who wrote the book on dispensations, uses them interchangeably and loosely, and I think he, 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 it's a problem when he does, if I may be critical of, well, he's with the Lord now, so he won't hear this. But uh, I'm going to be critical of his use of ages and dispensations, all right? Because a dispensation is not a time period. It is a stewardship. And it, it's comprised of various time periods within it, all right? Clearly, we're creatures of time, and these things unfold through time. But a dispensation is not a time frame. It's a stewardship. An age is a time frame, all right? Anyway. When you read Ryrie and you see his definition of, of dispensation, he'll tell you, a dispensation is a period of time in which, and right there he's already lost me, all right? Um, it's not a period of time. It is a stewardship in which, okay? So we'll talk about that as well. All right, we are the dispensation of the ministry of, of the mystery. It has been hidden in God who created all things so that, why did he hide it? Why not just lay it out there? Why not just tell people it was coming? Hey, church is coming, church is coming. No, he keeps it secret. He keeps it withheld while he's working his plan out for Israel, while the Hebrew people are writing the Hebrew scriptures and he's unfolding his plan on earth through those stewards, he's preparing for a different stewardship. 
and he's keeping it a mystery so that the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places angels had a had a part in the old testament in Israel's stewardship but it was not the same as as their role is today today we are a heavenly people and we have a primary uh, responsibility to proclaim Christ, to, to live out this wisdom and this grace and this plan of God before the heavenly people, before the angels, the elect angels and the fallen angels alike. They're watching us. They're watching us. And this is for their edification. So the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, I would stress, as I did last week, uh, when does an eternal purpose begin? When does an eternal purpose end? You know, kind of a trick question. It's eternal, all right? That means it's without beginning, it's without end, it transcends time. It was agreed to by Trinity in the the divine decrees before the foundation of the earth. It precedes time. Time itself is a part of these decrees. Creation of space and time is a part of, of the eternal plan, all right? And it's going to transcend space and time because once uh, we reach eternity future, this plan continues, all right? So we have an eternal purpose. And notice, he's not carrying it out in us. He's carrying it out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's huge as well, all right? Because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our positional truth in Christ. The church is in Christ, which means we're part of his plan for, for carrying, executing this eternal plan. All right. Thoughts on that? Questions on that? Comments on that? Again, I'm just trying to bring us back up to speed from where we were a week ago. I can show you some charts. I'm going to show you some charts, and then we'll keep working our way through the basics notebook. I'm I'm on page 42 presently on the basics notebook. Um, Clarence Larkin. Do you know Clarence Larkin? Clarence Larkin wrote in the 1920s, even before that, in the 19-teens. All right. He was contemporary with Schofield. He's a bit younger than Schofield, but so contemporary with late Schofield, we should say. Um, and, and he was a draftsman. He, he, he would draw charts, he would draw diagrams, he became a Bible teacher. I think he pastored for a period of time. Anyway, his book on dispensations is, is very humbly and, and accurately titled The Greatest Book of Dispensational Truth in the World. And, and I agree. Uh, at the time it was written and even now it is the greatest book of dispensational truth in the world and included in that book are charts dozens of charts like this one this is maybe the most comprehensive maybe the the largest one um but i like it because it goes from alpha to omega it shows from the beginning to the end it shows everything and then there's follow-up charts that zoom in on on portions of it and and we're going to do that we're going to zoom in and see the portions of it um, but it's helpful to know where we are in the church and what's coming next and, and what we have to look forward to so we're not fearful of the future or elections or politics or current events or anything like that. We are, we're stable based on the Word of God and seeing how the plan of God is unfolding. Uh, we're also not worried about global warming because the whole universe is going to be uh, burned by fire. Uh, the, the, uh, the planet, the, we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You might have heard that because according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our focus is on the other side of the fire. All right, It's not the millennium. The millennium is still this side of the fire. We're looking for the other side of the fire. All right, we have a question here. Chris, can you get the microphone, please? Give it to Mr. Dowd. 
Thank you, sir. Did I wake you up? Uh, he's fun to tease. He was not asleep. He's the smartest four people I know. Yes, sir. Um, Larkin is dividing the uh, dispensations up according to ages, antediluvian age, present age, and so forth. Is he not... Uh, he uses ages in a way that I don't use ages. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. he seems to be using time to, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to divide yeah. that. So uh, you're going to have to um, uh, correlate your opinion with uh, his, then, I suppose. Yes, I will. <laughs> if, if, if anyone cares to notice, uh, I will be glad to distinguish that. That's right. And, and, and by the way, what I do, putting dispensations as a top level and then an age as a subdivision of those dispensations... For example, the, the Gentiles, all right, they were the stewards. And then within that, you have an age of innocence, and you have an age of conscience, and you have an age of human government. And, and as all of those ages unfolded, there was no change of stewardship. It was still the Gentiles who were the stewards. Likewise with Israel. Israel has a stewardship, and within that, they have an age of promise and an age of law and an age of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There's a coming age of tribulation and an age of millennial kingdom. And as those ages pass by, it doesn't change the steward. The stewardship is still Israel. It's still the Jewish people in, in the stewardship of Israel. So when I, when I divide it out like that, I prefer to keep stewardship as the top level of classification. And then within that, the, the different ages as they unfold. Um, but different authors do different ways. Okay. Go to Kiev, Ukraine, and, and um, Jim Myers flips it. He does just the opposite. He has ages, and then within the ages, he has subdivisions of dispensations. That bugs me to tears. Larkin here as well. Uh, he talks about the present age, the age to come, the ages of the age of the ages, um, the creation ages. He's got different terms for it. A lot of it comes out of. Uh, Second Peter chapter 3, the heavens and the earth which are now, the earth which was then, the coming earth, that is, the uh, new heavens and new earth we're looking for, Second Peter 3.13. So yeah, he uses different expressions there. I'm gonna, I'll refer to this occasionally, and I'll keep it up and available, so if we can, we can look at it again, we can zoom in on it. Um, we have uh, a bit of a break here before the flood. There's a little picture of the ark there. And so before the flood, what Larkin labels as the antediluvian age, you know, the Bible never labels it like that. But anyway, so we've got innocence and then we have the fall. Uh, We have uh, innocence followed by conscience. And then after the flood, we've got the Tower of Babel and the age of human government. We've got the patriarchal dispensation. See, I use different terms. The legal dispensation, I don't use those, all right? I mean, the patriarchal dispensation is, is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. But they're Jews as part of the Jewish stewardship. It's part of Israel's stewardship under promise. All right. And then under law from Moses to Christ. And then under grace from Christ to rapture. That's us in the church. You know, in, in Israel's stewardship, it was a huge deal to be Jewish. And you got this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And if you were Jewish, you're part of the stewardship. Whether you're saved or not, you're part of the stewardship. You're part of Israel. Whereas Gentiles were not. They were excluded. Okay. In Christ, we're all brought together because there's no Jew or Gentile. We're one body in Christ. So that's one of the, the monster differences between Old Testament and New Testament is the position that we have in Christ. 
All right, so we'll refer to that. Also, a chart that I like better, because I designed it, <laughs> is uh, this one, the Plan of God Reader that has the dispensational chart in the back of it. It's an unfolding chart on the back of your Plan of God Reader. And uh, in this one, again, we go from Alpha to Omega, eternity past, eternity future. We've got the boundaries of time from the Alpha moment to the Omega moment. We've got, um, within that, we've got the stewards. And here's where you're going to notice, although I also kind of borrowed from Larkin a little bit just to highlight um, the world that was, the present world, and the world to come, all right? Larkin adapted that. It comes out of Second Peter. The world that was, the present world, and the world to come. And that's fine. I, in fact, I like that because it uses the word world. It doesn't use age or... or um, or dispensation. It's just the world, okay? And then we do the same thing uh, in, in English. Our language is so adaptable when we talk about uh, the Victorian age, right? I mean, it was really a different world back then, wasn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, it was the same planet, of course, the same geography, but it was a different world. In a lot of ways, uh, the world my parents grew up in was a different world, certainly a different age compared to where we are. So I don't mind that, that threefold division. But then uh, the, the, the bar under that with uh, whatever those colors are, uh, it's supposed to be like a gold and a blue, and that's supposed to be more of a red. Blue and red make purple, all right? Um, comes out differently for some reason, depending on the projector. But um, those are the stewards, all right? And on the original earth, angels had a stewardship. And we don't have a ton of information about it. We're going to see glimpses of it tonight. Angels had a stewardship before there were any men around. This is pre-Adam, all right? Pre-Adam and Eve. The angels had a stewardship. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And then we'll cross from the angels to the Gentiles, all right? By the way, I prefer to label it the dispensation of man rather than the dispensation of Gentiles. But if you're reading Larkin or Theme or... um, a lot of these guys, they'll call it the dispensation of Gentiles, right? Uh, to contrast it with the dispensation of the Jews. My, my beef with that, and it's really a nitpicky thing, is that there are no Gentiles until there are some Jews. <laughs> so until the call of Abraham, until we have Jews, there's no such thing as a Gentile. It's all humanity, all right? And it's humanity in contrast with angelity. So angels followed by man uh, is, is how I label that. And then Israel... You'll notice, though, God's not done with Israel, all right? And this chart was drawn specifically to convey that, that there's still this little bit of, of red coming across because Israel has a future. God's not done with Israel. Israel has a future. And they're presently on hold that a partial hardening of the Jews has taken place until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. We read in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so while he's calling out the church, while he's calling out the church, Israel still has a future. They've got a future tribulation and they've got a future millennium. A future tribulational uh, suffering and a future millennial reign. All within Israel's stewardship. See, then the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. And we're going to talk about that as well. Um, does some of this get deep? Yeah, some of it gets deep. But we're going to keep it basic. We're going to keep it on a surface level so we know where we are in the church. Also important to know within the church where we are. The church is broken down into two ages. The apostolic age and the post-apostolic age or the age of the local church. That's huge. Okay? My best Donald Trump imitation. 
It's huge. All right. And this is why. Because how many Christians, and maybe you know some, I know some, they think we're still living in the apostolic age. They're still operating as, as Pentecostals or Charismatics, or, or they still, you know, these, the gift of tongues and healings and miracles and all this other kind of stuff. It doesn't belong in the here and now. That was then. The signs of a true apostle were necessary then. The signs of a true apostle are not necessary today. The, the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. You don't keep laying a foundation forever. <laughs> you lay the foundation and then you put a building on it. That's what the church is, is a building. And so the idea that we're still building a foundation 2,000 years later, well, when does the foundation stop? <laughs> you know? Hello? We got. I mean, if there's going to be a rapture sometime, you've got to stop laying the foundation. You've got to put a building on the foundation. you eventually got to get to the roof. You've got to get to the, I hope we're there. I hope that this, this year is the final year. This day is the final day. I, I, I want to see the last Christian saved today so the trumpet can sound and, and we're out of here. So on this building, you know, we're, hopefully we're putting on the last final roof tiles and the last final uh, weather vane and a little rooster on top or whatever it is, okay? I put a steeple on this church and let's, let's call it done. And then we're, and then we're gone, all right? So there's the age of the apostles and the age of the local church. You'll notice Israel had an age of promise and an age of law. You know, Moses gave the law, but did that change the stewardship? It was still Jewish stewardship. It's been Jewish stewardship ever since the call of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, while they were in bondage in Egypt, they were still the stewards, even though they're slaves. So you have the age of promise, the age of law. Now, Jesus was born under the law, but I believe his three-year ministry, um, I call it the age of the incarnation. And that is blurry, Ethel, by the way. When I zoom it up that big, when I zoom it up that big, it gets blurry. Um, But the age of the incarnation, I think from, as I visualize it and as I draft it out here, something greater than the law is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Uh, when Jesus was, was on the earth and teaching and ministering, it was a unique age, all right? So I take that time frame and I, I set it apart. It's still the Jewish stewardship. That doesn't change, all right? Uh, David is seated, it's still the Jewish su- stewardship. The Davidic throne is vacated, it's still the Jewish stewardship. All of these different changes, they represent ages or subcategories within the overall heading of Israel's stewardship. Same thing in the tribulation, after the church is done. Israel will be ushered into a great tribulation. And, and it's, it's still their stewardship. It's the Jewish stewardship while they're under tribulation. It's still a Jewish stewardship when Jesus is on the throne in a millennial kingdom. It's a Jewish stewardship in the millennium as they minister to the Gentiles. All right. And as I said, the, the dispensation of man is broken down between innocence, conscience, and human government. Um, we don't know that the uh, angels had subdivisions. It's hard to determine that um, because it's just so sketchy. We don't have a ton of information. We know that they were placed. We know that they served. We know that Satan fell. We know that he took a third of the angels with him. We know that there was a war. We know at the end of the war that the, the earth was, was devastated in a tohu wabohu chaos destruction. All right? Because the world was formless and void and, and the, the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. We don't know much more about the, uh, the angelic earth. All right. 
So I'll keep this up and running as well, and we may refer to this chart uh, as well, not only tonight, but in, in future classes. All right, so back to the basic notebook. And um, we have different patterns, and, and, and these I, I like these as benchmarks. I like these as certainties. You know, there's a lot of questions that remain in Genesis. There's more questions than answers in Genesis. Um, and so, to, in my mind, there's key passages that jump out. And if I'm going to create a, a diagram, if I'm going to create an Alpha to Omega overview of, of everything, right, a fundamental theory of everything, I'm going I'm to use these key passages as, as anchor points, as milestones, to, to keep everything on track. And that includes Ephesians 1.10, where the end objective is the dispensation of the fullness of times. That God keeps that in his view. That's what we're headed for. That's the new heavens and new earth we're looking for. And I get that fullness of times in Ephesians 1.10. I'm also going to look at Proverbs 8 and, and see the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. I'm going to see the alpha moment at the beginning, from the beginning, from his works of old, before his works of old. Right? We have a lot of in the beginning statements, but in Proverbs 8 we have a from the beginning statement. And the alpha moment that is the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ is, is, is an anchor point. Colossians 1.18 is an anchor point. The fact that he's the creator of all things in the heavens, on the earth, visible and invisible. That's huge. Okay? Because in Genesis all we have is the visible. In Genesis we have, you know, you read through the six-day account and resting on the seventh day. All of that is physical, it's earthly, it's material. It's, it's, uh, it has nothing to do with the angelic realm. Angels are not mentioned in, in Genesis until a serpent is tempting Eve and until a cherub is posted with a flaming sword. All right? And so you're reading that and you're saying, well, what's a cherub, you know? And, and you're going back to those six creative days, you don't find cherubim anywhere. And you're left saying, well, when were the cherubim created? How's that work? It's, there's questions in Genesis more so than answers in Genesis. Well, Colossians tells us this, that they were created when, all right? We've got to put these things together. All things have been created through him and for him. Through him and for him. Okay? The plan of God does not revolve around us. It centers on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the focal point for God the Father. And, and so it's kind of useful. In Larkin's charts, for example, look at the cross. Look at the central place that the cross has in the Alpha to Omega view. It's, it's central. The plan of God revolves around Christ, similar to ours. The, the, the place of Christ is central as these things unfold, all right? So Genesis 1 and 2 don't tell us about the angels or their creation. But we know that they were on hand when God created the earth. So Job 38, where were you, Job, when I did this? Where were you, Job? Job wasn't there. No human was there, but the angels were there. Where were you, Job? So the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? All right? You ever know anybody that just keeps running their mouth even though they have no clue what they're talking about? <laughs> All right? You can, you can do a lot of talking and not, not have any knowledge, see? And this is the rebuke that the Lord gives to Job. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, obviously, he was nowhere. Adam and Eve weren't there. No human was there. 
Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone or its capstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now right there, we may not know a whole lot of other things, but right there it's undeniable. The morning stars and the sons of God, these are angelic references. They were there to watch the creation of the earth. All right, somebody was there to see it. God um, brought them around to watch the creation of the earth. And so we have patterns. We can take this concept, we can go back to Genesis, and we can see patterns, we can see principles, we can see concepts. Like when he divides out the waters. And God will always, it's remarkable how God creates a, a, a habitat and then he habitates it, okay? He creates a realm and then he populates it. So he creates the seas, and then he puts the fish there. He creates the dry land, he puts the animals there, uh, the air, he's got birds ready to go. Uh, so we have a pattern there. I think it was the same thing with the heavens and the heavenly host. All right? That's my concept, is that he created the heavens, and then he populated them with a heavenly host. The angels are called the heavenly host. They're called stars, depending on the passage you're reading. And so I think the pattern to be consistent is that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens. Observe the gap. And the earth. Okay? That's the first gap in the Bible. And I'm I'm, I'm presenting it this way because the gap doctrine is, is attacked today. The gap doctrine is hated today. And, and it's hated because it's mistaught, it's mislabeled, and they fail to identify that there's actually two gaps. And I've already shown you the first one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? And the, 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 the earth was delayed. The earth was the last piece of the puzzle. I think, um, again, patterns, examples, what do we have? God created everything for Adam except Eve, right? Created the plants, the animals, the birds, the fish, everything. And it puts Adam to work and Adam's all alone and he's working and he's naming the animals and he hasn't found his helpmate yet. In fact, he specifically says it. He says, Lord, something's missing here. There's no helper suitable to me. And he's naming all the animals. He's observing their, their male-female operation. He's, and he has no female for his male operation, right? I mean, he's, he's looking around and he says, where's my helper? And when he identifies the need is when God provides. Puts him to sleep, takes the rib, boom. Okay? And so, in my mind, Adam then sings, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she should be called woman for she was taken out of the man. And that to me is the, is the analogy to creation of the earth and the sons of God singing for joy. Because they looked across the whole universe. The heavenly host scans the whole universe. And they say, something's missing. And he says, all right, gather around now, watch this. And he creates the earth. There's something different about the earth. Unique in all the galaxies and all the, all the universe. All right. So we have an angelic presence at the creation of the earth. Isaiah 45, 18 says, The earth was not tohu wabohu. He formed the earth and made it. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. Notice the gap. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. 
So when we're reading Genesis and we find out that the earth was formless and void, we're scratching our head and saying, well, how did that happen? He didn't create it that way. What made it that way? How did that happen? All right, and that's our second gap. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's our first gap. And the earth was formless and void. That's our second gap. In between verse 1 and verse 2, something happened to make that earth formless and void. The angels weren't celebrating and singing and going, woohoo, look at that formless and void ugliness. No. When they were singing and celebrating, it was a beautiful thing. So we have two gaps in Genesis chapter 1. Jeremiah 4, verses 23 through 26 describes the warfare, the rebellion and the warfare, and the divine judgment that caused the formless and void condition. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. It's interesting, one detail we do know about the angelic stewardship is that there were terrestrial angels and there were heavenly angels, celestial, okay? Terrestrial and celestial. And there were those angels that were placed on the earth and God placed them there. Satan was one of them and he didn't like it. He wanted to raise his throne above the stars of God. He was on the earth and did not like where God had placed him. So there were terrestrial angels and there were celestial angels. And Satan did not like his presence, his his placement. And so I looked and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. All right, and so here we have this vision that Jeremiah reveals in Jeremiah chapter 4. This becomes a useful piece of the puzzle to add in to our other angelic studies, to our other pre-Adamic understandings of the earth. All right. If you want more on the angels, you've got Satan and his five I wills in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. His Hebrew name there is Helel ben Shachar. And there's his five I wills. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. That wasn't his seat. The right hand of God the Father belongs to Jesus Christ. The Father says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. To, to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? To none of them. Certainly not to this guy. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. He's, he believes he can dethrone God the Father and take that place above the, above the clouds. Also Ezekiel 28 where his name is Chothim Tachenoth. All right, we talked about that as well in our angelology series. Uh, Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is another description of Satan before the fall. You were in Eden, the garden of God. He's not talking to Adam or Eve here, okay? The only human beings that were in Eden were Adam and Eve. It's not a human being. It's an angel that's being spoken to. Every precious stone was your covering. You notice that? When uh, Adam was naming the animals, he found that some had fur and some had feathers and some had scales and some, you know, there's fish and birds and whatever. Um, There were no animals that had 
rubies, topazes, diamonds, barrels. I mean, can you imagine? (laughs) The hunters would be out after those things, right? Okay. But this is what the dragon was originally. He wasn't always a dark, fallen thing. He didn't always have those terrible scales of, of ugliness. The original dragon, the original Satan, before he fell, was a beautiful, gem-encrusted, glorious thing, as we see it described here. Ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, emerald, gold. And, and it's marvelous, too, when you study this. The Septuagint is slightly different than the Hebrew Masoretic text, but it's interesting. We have a parallel to the high priest ephod in Leviticus. That Israel's high priest wears an ephod that, that has these same stones. That's why I think that uh, Leviathan is the Levi dragon, the Levi Tanin, the Levitical dragon, the priestly dragon. In any event, he's dressed as a priest here. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, was in you. Notice, on the day you were created, they were prepared. This is not a human being, this is not an animal, it's not a zoological creature. You and I were born. This guy was created. He is a created being. And we're told he's a cherub. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. See, in Genesis, we're scratching our heads saying, what's a cherub? Here's a cherub right here. Not only is he a cherub, he's the Messiah cherub, the anointed cherub, the Masiach, okay? Cherub, who covers. And I placed you there. Didn't like where he was placed. You're on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There's creation again. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. You notice the difference? This is, there's no human experience. Only Adam and Eve were sinless and became sinners. You and I and every other human that's ever lived were born sinners and then we were made righteous by faith in Christ. This guy though, this anointed cherub, this Messiah cherub, um, he was created blameless, but then was found unrighteousness. Was found, he fell. He went from a righteous state to an unrighteous state, as we know the angels did, as we know Satan did. By the abundance of your trade. And so to me it's clear. I'm not afraid of angelic passages. I think the folks that miss this want to miss this because there's a hesitancy to see anything invisible, to see anything angelic, to see anything spiritual. And so then they allegorize everywhere. They allegorize for days to try to define how this is a human being. Even though he's created, not born, he's a cherub, he's, he's all these things. Unrighteousness was found in him. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Now, you know, Satan sinned before Adam. There's a doctrine that's taught in Romans 5 about how because Adam sinned, we all sinned. How death came into the world through sin, through sin singular, the sin estate, through the estate of Adam and his sin. It has nothing to do with Satan's sin, which preceded Adam's. All right? We've got to be clear on these things. You sinned, therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I point to this verse a lot when I tell you how insane Satan is. The wisest being ever, but his wisdom is corrupted. He's still genius. He's, he's transgenius in his, in his wisdom, but it's a, it's a corrupted wisdom. It's a perverted wisdom. 
I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. The creation of humanity is meant to resolve the angelic conflict. It's creating man now to resolve, to witness, to observe, to testify. This too, I think, is interesting. Verse 18. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade. What's wrong with trade? What's wrong with business? He wasn't called to do that. He was a priest. He had a temple. He had sanctuaries. You profaned your sanctuaries. How many ministries do you know get ruined when the preacher gets uh, his hand in and he's muddling with the money? All right, no, you get deacons for that. You can keep your hands out of that. All right. By the, uh, you profaned your sanctuaries in the unrighteousness of your trade. You see, I think, and, and this is marvelous, right? This is before Adam and Eve. This is on the angelic earth. This is in their stewardship. And, and if you, you want to know, uh, I mean, he's the first of the, of the money changers, right? Why do you think Jesus went so bonkers and berserk when he sees the money changers in the temple? He sees these people profaning the Father's house, turning the Father's house into a, a, a robber's den or a, a place of merchandise. Jesus goes, absolutely. I mean, really? A whip of cords and flipping over tables and, and all this? That's not normal Jesus behavior. What, what triggers that? I think it's this chapter. I think it's the, the whole scope and weight of the angelic conflict and then what he's seen before, before the foundation, or not before the foundation of the earth, but before man, before humanity. When Satan and his, and his rebellion defiled your sanctuaries, you profaned your sanctuaries. And therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I'd love to see that. I hope that's on DVD. I want to watch that as a deleted scene. This dragon... This gem-encrusted dragon, and imagine, instead of breathing the fire out, it comes from within and it just seeps through his whole, I mean, it destroys the stones. It just, he's, he's left as the Leviathan Hulk that we see in the book of Job. All right. It has consumed you. I've turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. So here's, we've got these chapters. We've got Isaiah 14, we have Ezekiel 12, we've got Revelation 12. And in those passages don't have time markers, so we put them together best as we can with uh, an overall framework, all right? And I think our framework is the best. And if you want to tweak it or fine-tune it or you want to kind of adjust certain things and replace certain things, feel free. I'm open to talk about all of it. It's just you've got to make sure that the serpent's a fallen creature before Genesis 3.1, all right? Because it's not an unfallen Satan that's tempting Adam and Eve. So whatever else you do, wherever else you place the fall of Satan, um, the, the people who attack us, who hate the gap theory, they call it gap theory. I call it gap doctrine, all right? I, I call their non-gap theory the non-gap theory. Uh, in any event, it's, to me, it is the reconciliation of Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Job. All right. So it's not a theory, it's a reconciliation. It's the it's the scriptural reconciliation of Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Job to put into a framework all of these angelic and human events so as to have a fall of Satan preceding the the serpent of Genesis 3. 
Yeah, great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. On his head were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's why we say a third of the angels followed Satan. Two-thirds stayed faithful. Isn't that amazing? We got Michael, we got Gabriel, we know two elect angels' names. We got Satan. <laughs> uh, as far as we know, well, I guess we know we know about Beelzebub and we know about Apollyon and we know a few other names. All right. But his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Threw them down to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she get, when she gave birth he might devour her child. There's, you know, here's a time marker. How about the birth of the humanity of Jesus Christ and the massacre of the babies in, in uh, uh, Bethlehem? Now this is it's a panorama uh, text in Revelation 12 that spans from the angelity past to the birth of Christ and then to the future. Because she gives birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. How about that? The whole life of Christ right there in one verse. I should have used that verse and could have taught the life of Christ shorter than 10 years. <laughs> all right. Uh, no, I'm teasing. We want to harmonize the Gospels and teach the whole life of Christ. But that verse teaches the whole life of Christ right there. The Virgin Mary gives birth to Jesus Christ, a male child, and he's caught up to God and to his throne. That's the whole life of Christ right there. First Advent. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so she would be nourished for 1,260 days. All of a sudden now that's future. That's second half of the tribulation. Three and a half years of the great tribulation. So, panorama. Put them in a framework. Put them on a chart. Diagram them. Do something. Have a, have a big picture view because God has a big picture view. And so if you're going to use the Larkin chart, use the Larkin chart. If you're going to use the uh, Plan of God reader, use that. All right? But let's just try to keep this, this focus from Alpha to Omega and know that it's centered on Christ. It's not centered on us. All right. And then there's man. <laughs> you know? The fall of Satan, the destruction of the earth, the tohu abohu. You think, wow, what a horrible plan. God failed. Why did he create angels with volition? You know, was, was that stupid on God's part? See, no, slow down, relax. He's got a plan. We haven't even seen the best of it yet. The best of it's yet to come. Because he restores the earth for habitable conditions. And then he takes some dust and he fashions a body. And then he breathes into that body the breath of lives and Adam becomes a living soul. All right, and there we have it. Um, God's plan is still on track. He's never lost track of it yet. The exalted place of man, the low place of the angels. Don't, why, why would you worship angels? They're the servants for all eternity. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's us. That's them. They're the servants. We're in Christ. You get to Hebrews chapter 2. He did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but us. We're the ones that will rule with Christ. We're going to judge the angels, we're told. 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? This life is preparing us for the next. That's why we have to be diligent. That's why we should be growing. 
We want to grow to maturity. We want to keep growing. We want to be active participants in this. We're being equipped now for what we're going to do then. No different than our Savior. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. His earthly walk was preparing him for glory. It's preparing us for glory. Unlike the angels, man was created in the image of God. Unlike the angels, man was created male and female. Unlike the angels, man was created with procreative privilege. There are no girl angels. We mentioned that last week. They don't procreate, although some of them rebel and procreate with human women. And that was the Nephilim operation in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, judgment that came there. All right. Any questions on that? That's, that's all angelic tonight. That's all before Adam and Eve. We're getting ready for Adam and Eve and then the intrusion, the attacks that start coming. Satan isn't just going to roll over and give up. All right, he, he starts attacking as quick as he can, tempting Adam and Eve and leading them into sin and then attacking humanity after that, corrupting the seed of the woman promise. Any questions? Am I going too quickly? Doug, Doug has a question. Get the microphone to the back row, please. I always heard that you know, Satan was the most beautiful, smartest of all the angels, but he wasn't the, um, the flying kind, right? He was a terrestrial I believe so. I believe he was a terrestrial angel because he was not satisfied with his placement. Right? It says in Ezekiel 28, I placed you there. And he was very dissatisfied with that. And, uh, and that's represented in Isaiah 14 with his five eye wills. He wanted a heavenly seat. He wanted God's seat. He wanted to be above. The, he felt beneath the celestial angels. And really at its core, that's the, that's the main issue with, with satanic thinking. That's the main issue with us and our fallen thinking. We're not content to be humble. You know, when you, when you're, when you, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He was made for a little while lower than the angels so that in his victory he was then exalted. You know, take your seat at the end of the table so when they tell you to move up, you, then you're exalted. But Satan is all about self-exaltation. He's all about promoting himself and being made high. And God brings the high low and he exalts the humble. So yeah, I believe he was a terrestrial angel that was not satisfied with, uh, with that placement. So the difference between a cherub and a seraphim? Those are different expressions. And I, and I would not want to lock in because there are cherubim in the heavenly places as well. And he was a cherub on the earth. And so I would not want to take cherubim and seraphim as kinds of angels. We don't want to think of them as breeds or, or, or you know, races or, or classes of angels. All right. It may it may refer to uh, ranks. It may refer to any of other. Uh, it could even be an office function, as far as that goes. Cherub have two wings. Seraphim have six. Um, seraph is also a term for serpent. Seraph is also a term for fire. Just depends. And the the Hebrew language kind of blends those aspects. Okay. Thank okay. you. Uh-huh. All right. Question up here. I want to go back to Ezekiel uh, 28, verse mm-hmm. 14, where it, it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Um, and then in 16, it's saying, oh, covering cherubs. It's, what exactly is he covering? 
Yeah, that's the same verb uh, who covers in verse 14 or covering. It's a guarding term. It's shamer. Pretty sure it's shamer. Nope, it's sakad. Okay. Yep, it's sakad in both cases. And if you think about covering or overshadowing, all right, uh, when the Ark of the Covenant was crafted, the, the, the cherubim had their wings over top and, and covering or shadowing the, the Ark. Likewise, on the, on the veil, the, the artwork of the cherubim on the veil is such that their wings come together and they overshadow or they cover or they guard. And that's the concept. It's the same verb that's used here. And that anointed is the Messiah. It's the mashach vocabulary of Messiah. And the only angel that has the Messiah um, title. But nowhere else in Scripture is an angelic being called Messiah, except for here. Excellent question. Thank you. Other questions? Are we ready for Adam and Eve? All right. In the dispensation of man, there's great angelic conflict. And this bothers some folks, all right? Um, it bothers a lot of the um, answers in Genesis people. doesn't bother me at all. Uh, we know that there was an original earth, the earth was formless and void, tohu wabohu, and then the earth is restored to habitable conditions for humanity. That's the six-day account of the, of the creation week and the resting on the seventh day. That's the restoration of the earth for habitable conditions. The, um, and then uh, the early stewardships here for the Gentiles or for humanity. First of all, in innocence, before they fall into sin. Then after they fall into sin, what we call the age of conscience. Uh, and then that leading to the flood, the Tower of Babel, and so forth. But there's conflict in all of that, all right? Cain murders Abel. There's, there's conflict. Uh, the, the fallen angels come in and start producing the giants with human women. There's conflict. There's the flood. There's conflict. Tower of Babel, there's conflict. There's conflict throughout these, uh, these early ages. And we want to be... We want to be clear on this. And it's not an accident. The reason why is because there's a promise that's given. Uh, when, when Satan leads Adam and Eve into sin, it's not game over. All right, the Father has a plan that covers that. And he says, so let's, let's look at, at Genesis 3 and take a look at that plan. And we'll see the promise, the very first gospel ever preached to humans is this protevangelum of, uh, of the promise of the gospel here. In Genesis chapter 3, the very chapter where they are kicked out of the garden, he's promising them uh, salvation. All right, we want to be clear on this. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. That's huge, okay? That tells you he was beyond that, that class. He was beyond that group. He was not the most of, he was more than. That's significant. He's not one of those. I could talk about the smartest person in this room or I could talk about somebody who's smarter than anybody in this room. All right? That's a different conversation. See? And so we're not talking about the most crafty of all the beasts. We're talking about more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Satan is not a zoological creature. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. He's corrupting Scripture in this temptation. Anyway, so we, we know the story. We know they fall. And then uh, the Lord comes and he 
asks them his questions. He's driving at confession. He's looking to restore them. They're afraid. They're hiding. They've covered themselves with fig leaves. They, they don't like their nakedness. Who told you you were naked? We, we know the story, all right? And in the process here comes a promise. And I want you to think about this this week as we uh, will come back to this next week. But I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. Speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Her seed is the, is the Christ. The seed of the woman is Christ. The virgin-born Messiah is Christ. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first gospel ever preached. And it's preached to Satan. Okay, about the victory that Christ will have over him. We'll also pay attention to Satan's seed. Um, the Satan does have a seed. The Antichrist is, is yet to be unveiled, but Satan has a seed. And we're going to talk about that as well. Um, so here's, here's the first gospel message. And the message is a crushing defeat for Satan, and he doesn't like that message. And so in the early ages of the Gentiles then, you have Cain murdering Abel. That's an attack on the seed of the woman. He sees two kids there, one of them's righteous and one's unrighteous. So what does he do? He gets this one to murder that one. Ha ha, game over, I win. Every time he thinks he's winning, see, God's way ahead of him. He says, no, I've got a plan for this. All right. But Cain murdering Abel was an attack on the seed of the woman promise. The Nephilim, the birth of the giants, was an attack on the seed of the woman promise. If there's no more humanity, how can the seed of man come, or the seed of the woman come and, and uh, crush Satan's head? And so the, the, the role is to pervert human genetics with the uh, fallen angels there that were making babies with the human women. It all comes back here to Genesis 3.15. The flood of Noah was judgment in the context of fallen angelic intrusion into the human realm. You read that in Genesis 6. The empire of Nimrod fixed Babel as the apex of rebellion against God. The first center of rebellion against God was Babel, Babylon. And that's the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, the theme against all, throughout all scripture. Nope, okay, thought I had a second one. All right, we're good. Um, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close here. We'll uh, come back to this next week. We'll finish the Gentiles next week. We'll move on to the Jews. We'll talk about the church. We'll talk about the things to come. This plan of God is, is central. All right. We want to make sure that we're solid on it. We're not trying to steal Israel's blessings. We're not trying to replace Israel. They ha- still have a future. They have their blessings. We're going to be clear on that as well. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your grace. Bless our time together, Father, uh, not only tonight, but in the coming weeks as we continue to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.